is as breath in your body, there is hope. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Think Hope Podcast, and I am your hopeologist, Dr. Rosalind Lewis Tompkins, and once again here to help facilitate your journey of hope, and we have such good news to share because the hope train is moving down the track. As a matter of fact, it is picking up speed because we are getting closer and closer to the National Month of Hope in April, you're going to actually hear uh, an interview that I did with the founder, Dr. Ann Bailey. She is the founder of Green Team International. It's a powerful organization. We'll hear a lot more about it. We got a chance to go there in December and actually participate at one of the schools that they are sponsoring, Jacks River Primary School. We will hear a lot more about that as I play uh, the interview that I did with Dr. Ann Bailey, and she's also the author of Weeping Time, and that is a book about the largest recorded slave auction in the history of the United States, and she wrote a book about it. I'm currently reading it, and we're going to talk about that as well. So I want to read uh, this article, this blog that I wrote, and it's entitled, What Brings Me Hope? the resiliency of African-Americans and those of the African diaspora. I'm currently reading The Weeping Times, Memory, and the Largest Slave Auction in American History by Anne Caroline Bailey, published by Cambridge University Press in October 2017. The Weeping Time is about the largest recorded slave auction in American history that took place in Savannah, Georgia in 1859. Over 400 men and women and children were sold by the Butler Plantation Estates. While I must admit it is not my normal everyday reading, the weeping time is quite compelling and so is the author, Dr. Ann Bailey. I met Dr. Bailey when I traveled to Jamaica in December We stayed at her home in the hills of Portland, surrounded by the picturesque, natural beauty of Jamaica in all her glory. Dr. Ann was a gracious host to us as we were there to support Green Team International. Dr. Ann Bailey founded the nonprofit organization in 2013. Green Team International is an outgrowth of the Echo Tour site, St. Mary's Peace Farm, whose mission is to empower people in North America, the Caribbean, the African diaspora, and the world in matters concerning education and the environment through community-based grassroots initiatives. One of those initiatives is the outreach to Jacks River Primary School, located in the community of Jacks River in the parish of St. Mary. We attended a Christmas program at Jacks River school and ate some of the delicious food that they prepared from their farm. We brought gifts and gave them to the children and shared words of encouragement with them. It was an extremely rewarding experience 
and it is great to see how Green Team International is supporting this school in the rural community and providing scholarships for the children to continue their education. In a recent Think Hope podcast, Hope Chat with Dr. Ann, who is a dual citizen of the U.S. and Jamaica, I asked her what brings her hope, and, um, and among the things that she shared was the resiliency of African Americans and those of the African diaspora. I must say, that brings me hope, too. And now we're going to hear the interview that I did with Dr. Ann, and you will see why that brings me hope. And just a little bit from her bio, which is quite extensive, Ansi Bailey, Ph.D., is a writer, historian, and professor of history at Sunny Binghamton State University of New York. In her work, she combines the elements of travel, adventure, history, and an understanding of contemporary issues with an accessible style. Her, her work ranges from adult nonfiction to children's historical fiction and include African voices of the Atlantic slave trade beyond the silence and the shame. And also, you can make a difference, the story of Martin Luther King Jr. And her newest book, what, we, what she'll talk about on the interview, The Weeping Time, Memory, and the Largest Slave Auction in American History. And it goes on, she has such a, a, a wide uh, bio talking about the things that she's been able to do. And I'll just, I'll just wrap it up by reading this last paragraph. Bailey is committed to issues of public history and historical preservation. And on March 18, 2015, she was invited to speak at the United Nations for the commemoration of the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And she shared her research and writing and other professional ex experiences with NGOs that are affiliated with the, the United Nations. Bailey's work with the New York Times 1619 Project further enhanced her reputation as a public scholar. Her contributions to the 1619 Project brought many of these issues to the forefront and continues to shine a light on the legacy of slavery in the U.S. and around the world. And now we will hear the interview from Dr. Ann Bailey. Well, it is, it is always a uh, a blessing and a pleasure to be able to have a chat with you, uh, Dr. Ann Bailey. Thank you. And uh, tell you, I'm still, I'm still basking in the time that I spent with you in Jamaica. Oh. And, uh, yeah, that was glad to hear. Was, mm -hmm. Yeah, that was really phenomenal to be able mm. to have that time and and the beauty of of nature there mm -hmm. in Portland as well as the, uh, the time spent with the students uh, from the school and um, just kind of getting to know some of the things that, that you're doing there. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's where I'd like to start. I'd like to start off by talking about your work with Green Team International. Is that, is mm -hmm. that did I get that correct? Okay. You did? Mm-hmm. 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 Okay. Because that, to me, that is just, you know, fascinating what you guys are doing. So why don't you share with everyone exactly what that is? Sure. Well, first, I, I should just say, well, thank you for having me on your podcast. And um, 
And it's, it's a pleasure to talk about Green Team. We started uh, this organization. I mean, we've been, I think we've been active literally for, you know, over, over a decade um, now, definitely over a decade. But the actual official beginning of the nonprofit was 2013. We got started in St. Mary in Jamaica, in the Caribbean, in which is rural St. Mary. It's not, it's not far from the beach, but yet at the same time, it's really a, a rural community. It's not a beachfront community. And it's away from kind of a tourist area and so forth where just regular folk live. And um, I had uh, purchased a farm there uh, years ago. And, you know, the first instinct that people end up doing, especially as somebody who's Jamaican-American like myself, I'm, I'm American, I have lived in the States since I was a young child, and I was born in Jamaica, but I am, you know, a U.S. citizen. And I've often gone back to Jamaica, you know, on a regular basis. So very often people from what we call the Jamaican diaspora, when you go back, very often you kind of go back and you buy something and then you build a house. <laughs> um, maybe planning for retirement or whatever. And what was interesting is that I didn't have that instinct early on. My desire, you know, and I think that was just led by the Lord, was to, to really be involved in the community um, around the farm. So. It wasn't so much about having some kind of personal property, but really having an anchor in that community um, in a way that we could be in some way of service. So we very early on developed a relationship with Jacks River Primary School, which is just a wonderful little rural school, which, you know, by this time we've been working with them for over a decade, but in the early days it was just really bringing kids to the farm for field trips, nature walks, that kind of thing, but also educational tours. We wanted to use the farm as a way to teach them a little bit about their heritage, and so it was kind of, we call it heritage and environmental tour. So you learn about the heritage, the history of Jamaica, but you also learn if you took these tours, teachers and students that you learn about the environment and how to protect the environment. And those are like our twin issues, history and the environment. So that's how we got started, you know, with these tours on the farm property and a way to give the kids kind of a, a, a you know, a little break from school, but yet still a learning enrichment opportunity. And um, eventually we started providing scholarships to young people at that school for furthering their education. And also trying to instill in them this idea that, you know, if we're the stewards of the environment, we've been, this is the blessing that we have, and um, we're to take care of it and to be nurtured by it, but also to take care of it at the same time. And we wanted to kind of raise up leaders who would think about those issues as they grew up, you know? And, and think about it from any different perspective. Certainly we encourage a Christian perspective because we think it's there in the Bible. Um, um, but, you know, whatever perspective they, they saw, that they could see that they would be stewards of, the, of what they'd been given and just appreciate where they've been placed in life um, and think about how to make the best use of it. So that's how we got started. Okay, and, and what uh, product uh, do you grow or, on the farm or product? Well, the farm itself had been a flower farm for years before 
we acquired it and you know it also had been a place with had all these fruits it has about 12 varieties of fruits but wow. at the time the predominant um fruit was was uh grapefruit and an interesting okay. story there is that you know there's a very popular drink in jamaica some of your listeners may have heard of it called ting t-i-n-g and it's a grapefruit drink and very popular and um, it's like a grapefruit soda basically and that company used to source grapefruits from our farm for a long time oh. and uh, yeah it's very interesting and wow. then yeah pri- prior to when we, we we purchased it and then eventually Pepsi which we all know you know took over the Ting brand um, oh. and then lots of things started to change exactly so you know, one of the things that I wanted young people and all people to learn is that the environment in Jamaica, it's a precarious thing. It's beautiful. And when we think about Jamaica, we just think about the sun and the surf and tourism and, and that's all good. But, you know, this farm, like other places where just regular people have to make a living in the, in the countryside, when you came to visit, you learned what some of the hardships were if you will, like what it's like for the average farmer, right? What it's like for them when big brands say, oh, you need to gather all those fruits and bring them to us at an astronomical cost of transportation when obviously they can't afford that. We no longer will come to your farm and pick things up and make it easier for you to sell your goods. What it's like when both government and private investors kind of disinvest from the rural communities. And that, you know, that really drives a lot of people to leave the rural communities, go into the cities, and frankly, that also drives up crime. You know, we worry about things like security issues and violence in the inner cities, not just in Jamaica, but elsewhere. There are forces that push people into these situations. So we were always trying to kind of shed a light on that, but also help young people who were in these communities to feel like there was hope. Like there were things on these farms, because it's like, you know, it's incredible biodiversity that they could start to think about these communities as not just places that you left and had to leave and go somewhere else, whether it was the U.S. or the cities or what have you, but places where you could one day, you know, be a part of developing. Does that make sense? So you could one day be a part of bringing them to life again, you know, so that they weren't just communities with the, the kind of the very old and the very young. So that's how we saw ourselves at first, trying to be a bridge um, and also just trying to communicate the importance of rural life in Jamaica and how that's connected to security issues, which everybody cares about, and how that's connected to education and the environment and how to be a good steward of what we've been given. Now, what was the name of the school that, that we went to? Jacks River Primary. So that so now we've had a full-fledged relationship with the school, and what's happened is that Green Team, the staff of Green Team, um, which includes people who manage the farm, one of the things that we thought to break this cycle was to just work with the young people. And this school, we would provide funding for them to start a vegetable garden on the school property. And um, this made this, it, just on a very simple level, it's a simple thing, 
but the young people started getting involved in growing their own vegetables. What did that mean? That meant that, you know, in some cases where families could not afford breakfast, they could have, like, proper meals. All those vegetables were, like, you know, like straight from farm to table and straight into the cafeteria. Food was delicious because uh, when you said that, I thought about the meal that we were able to partake of from there. Uh -huh. And the children were so delightful. Oh, I'm so glad you had that experience because that's what we, you know, that, that we're, we feel like we're a part of, you know, helping them and their nutrition, right? You know, we all know that you need to have healthy nutrition in order to be able to learn, you know, to focus at school. And whenever there were extra vegetables, they could bring those home. They could bring whatever it is from the school farm right home free. What you experienced was just, you know, the result of years of a relationship. We're so grateful that we've been able to work with these families, um, especially in this COVID era. To be honest with you, Dr. Raz, these yeah. last couple of years, you know, we weren't able to do a lot of programming, so we just provided relief monthly, you know, uh -huh. so that families could come and, um, you know, pick up like a grocery bag of, of foodstuffs. And so we were really happy that, you know, both your organization and the His team, um, Prayer Outreach, they also helped sponsor a couple of those months here and there. So. We've been fortunate that that's been a part of the relationship. Like, it's evolved. Like, we realized that during COVID, that's what the need was. You know, it was just for basic food stuff. And so we provided the funds that the teachers could then, you know, make those arrangements um, on a monthly basis. And now they're back to school. So that's the, that was the kind of big celebration that you were able to witness. And we're <laughs> glad that you were there. Yeah, I uh, always love that whenever we can connect with the children and uh, and then they were so respectful and just just really interested, just really interested in in the things that we were saying. So that's mm -hmm. always encouraging. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. another thing that that you do and um, I wanted us to definitely talk about is that you are a historian. Mm hmm. And um, you, and what is your specialty? My specialty is African and African American history, as well as Caribbean history. And um, the easiest kind of the umbrella way to say this is African diaspora studies. So it's kind of the history of people of African descent wherever they have lived, past and present. You know, live, work, and um, and where they have migrated to. It's all of it's all of the above, but particularly African-American, Caribbean, and African history. And the interesting thing there, Dr. Ross, is like, you know, people, people sometimes say, well, how did you get involved in, like, you know, rural development and, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> you know, and the environment and, you know, rural schools and education, and, you know, how did you get involved in all that? And I tell you, it really did stem from this work, you know, I, you know, I do a lot of work in slavery studies, essentially, and some of what I had found, a lot of what I'd found, is that this same, these same areas, which were pretty much, even then and now, for a long time, have been somewhat neglected, right, economically, as I was mentioning. Um, they're not places that are, that are as economically vibrant as they could be. These were the sources of wealth for the Western world. And you, when you understand that this, these areas in Jamaica made England, Britain, you know, 
you know, helped to make Britain the modern power that it is today. It made it an empire. It's really hard to look at those places and not see wealth, you know. It's hard to look at them and just see poverty when you know what, when you know in the details what, how they contributed to the making of the modern world. And I think that's what I was, part of what I was motivated to try to communicate to the people who live there now, like, you know, now it may look like it's neglected. Now it may look like a place that business has abandoned. Now it may look like there's nothing here. But you need to look closely. You need to look more closely. You know, the biodiversity, the richness of the land. I mean, it's organic. It's the fruitfulness, some of which you witnessed when, you know, we were in Portland. It's similar there. The bamboo, you know, there's so much there that other countries right now are taking full advantage of in their countries when they have the same species of plants and fauna and flora. And I just wanted the people of the land to see it in a different way. Does that make sense? You know, see wealth, not poverty. Yeah. And because I think, as you know, it's, you know, as a man thinketh, so he is, you know, like you have to see that. You have to see yourself in a different way um, yeah. before something different happens. So a lot of this work was really informed by my historical work, which just has never left me. And I'm always encouraging people to dig deep, deep into their history. Don't, don't stay on the surface. Don't believe the hype. You know, there's all this hype in our culture now, both there, there's hype there, and there's hype here too for African-Americans. You know, there's like the people that everybody sees and, you know, what's cool and all that stuff. And that's fine. Good, good for them. But go beyond the surface and go deep into our history. I think there's a lot of power there, a lot of power there, and it's untapped. And um, I'm constantly hoping that will happen. Well, that is powerful, very powerful interview there that we have been hearing from Dr. Ann Bailey, Green Team International, Hopi Awardees for 2022. And we're going to take a little hope break now entitled Ice Cream for the Soul. And then we'll come back for the second half of the interview where we'll begin talking about the book, The Weeping Time. I'm hopologist Dr. Rosalind Lewis Tompkins, and I am here to share a hope thought with you today. Taken from my book, As Long As There's Breath in Your Body, There Is Still Hope, and my Practice of Hopeology booklet, Learn how to become more hopeful and get your hope thoughts today guaranteed to lift you from a place of sorrow and despair and help you to think hope. Join me now for your hope shot for today. Hope is like ice cream for our soul. I scream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream. <laughs> I remember that saying from when I was a little girl and also how it stuck around for my daughter when she was little as well now for my grandchildren. And I believe the saying of ice cream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream is so popular because of how eating ice cream makes us feel. I remember 
in our neighborhood when I would hear the sound of the ice cream truck. It always brought so much joy. As a matter of fact, my cousins and I would follow the truck <laughs> even after having our share of ice cream because of what it represented. It represented refreshing. It represented sweetness and goodness. It somehow made us feel good eating that sweet, cold ice cream. So many different flavors. I remember getting the ice cream cone with sprinkles and then the chocolate dip cone became my favorite even until adulthood <laughs> when I could still eat it. Now it's very seldom that I eat ice cream but the memories that ice cream has imprinted upon my soul will last forever. And now I take joy in watching my grandchildren when they come over and I have these little ice cream cups and they'll get it and just giggle and laugh and enjoy. And that is what hope is like for our souls. Hope is ice cream for the soul. In Psalm 86, 4, it says, Your servant rejoices because, Lord, I set my hope on you. Hope causes joy in the midst of any trial and tribulation that you may be going through. Think about it. Whenever despair comes in like a thief in the night and you're feeling depressed about a situation that it seems impossible or insurmountable and then when somehow you get hope and how it causes you to get up, to rejoice, to enjoy life and that's how ice cream has become too many in our society. A time of enjoyment, of refreshing. That's why ice cream is symbolic of hope. And hope is like ice cream for the soul. And the good thing about it, you cannot be lactose intolerant to hope. And you can have as much as you like and not worry about calories. Overdose on hope today. <laughs> And instead of dying, you'll come to life and you'll get excited just like the little children when they hear the sound of the ice cream truck coming down the lane. Remember, hope is like ice cream for your soul. I'm Dr. Rosalind White Lewis Tompkins and I pray that you have enjoyed this hope thought for today. For more hope thoughts, please listen to Think Hope Podcast. If you'd like more information about how you can become involved with the Hope Campaign, please visit makeahopeconnection.com. You can also go to practiceofhopology.com. Remember, 
as you plant the seeds of hope into the garden of your heart, blessings will spring forth. Yes, ice cream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream. (laughs) That's what hope is like. Now, I'd like to share the second part of the interview I did with Dr. Ann Bailey, talking about her book, The Weeping Time. Well, I certainly uh, have been enjoying your book, The Weeping Time. That's great. I'm glad you're reading it. I am. I'm I'm taking my time. I'm taking my time. I'm savoring it. And uh, I've, yes, I've actually highlighted uh, a couple of passages that I wanted, um, you know, to kind of, for us to have a discussion around. But why don't you just share what the weeping time is, is all about for those that may not know. So the weeping time, um, it's a project that took me, gosh, almost 12, almost 12 years to, to, to come to completion, to, to publication. It's about the large, it's called, first of all, the book is called The Weeping Time, Memory and the Largest Slave Auction in U.S. History, in American History. And so it's about the largest slave auction in American history, which took place in 1859. And it's important, one, because it's the largest and the largest of anything, you know, you know, gives you pause, right? makes you stand and pay attention, but also because it took place two years before the American Civil War. And what that meant is that this auction, which scattered 400 plus people, including 30 babies across the country, um, you know, it was a really monumental thing. I was so drawn to this story, which was like, I think I think it's fair to say that before I wrote about it, it was a little bit like a footnote of history. Like, oh, that's an interesting trivia thing. But, you know, now it's taking on, thank God, a kind of iconic status where you're really forced to think about, you know, these 400 plus people, their family, the separation and the pain and the trauma that they must have undergone, um, what it's like when mothers are separated from sons, what it's like when, you know, a would-be wife and husband, you know, an engaged couple are separated, what it's like to be, to not know if you'd ever see each other again. Um, because it's two years before the Civil War, but they don't know that there's going to be a Civil War. Like, you don't know what's coming up. Like, you can't tell the future, right? So they don't know that in two years or so, they may possibly have an opportunity to find each other again. They have no idea where they... They don't even know how to tell each other where they're going. It's just just devastating on so many levels. And the story of the Weeping Time is the story of the auction, which was one of thousands. Hundreds of thousands of auctions, Dr. Oz. Hundreds of thousands. And if you can imagine that that was the kind of almost everyday trauma that people of African descent endured. And yet, you know, if anybody, typically if you ask people, can you you name one auction? You know, most people can't. So I wanted to make sure that you could name at least one and you could honor their sacrifice. You could honor what they went through and know that they called it the weeping time because they wanted you to remember. You know, you don't name something unless you want people to remember, right? You know, they named it the weeping time. The enslaved on the auction block said these two days in Savannah, Georgia, which is where it took place in 1859, should be called the weeping time 
because of what we endured. And again, I can't, people run away from difficult histories, but if you look closely, you realize the power in the powerlessness. To be able to name your condition so that generations from now will be able to acknowledge that you were, you were human, you went through this, is so powerful. And I'm just glad to have been one of the people to, to convey their story. Yes, it's, a, it's definitely a powerful story, and it's uh, initially when I first started reading it, uh, it was it was so painful. I just kind of set it down for a minute because sure. it takes you to a place. Uh, just right. thinking about our history, uh, African American history, and uh, some of the things that um, that we've had to endure, and yeah. then being from the South, right here in. Tallahassee, Florida, Savannah, Georgia is not far from here. <laughs> That's I, right. I drive through there, especially heading to Atlanta and, you know, different sure. places. We kind of hit close to home. But then as I picked it back up again uh, and, and just start getting captivated by the stories that you do tell in the midst of, you know, all of the other um, history and things of that nature, the accuracy is, is wonderful. I could tell you put a lot into it and when you say 12 years wow that that is something yeah. and um so i want to i want to just share a couple of passages that i sure. highlighted as a hopeologist anytime i spot hope or i can you know make a connection there it always stands out i'm just going to read it but this this uh sentence stuck out it says, in spite of the seemingly dire statistics regarding African-American families, the picture is not completely bleak. In this book's epilogue, I consider the central role that memory plays in building hope. And then you kind of go on, talk a little bit about um, black family dysfunction. Um, mm-hmm. and it, but, but that just kind of grabbed me, the central role that memory plays in building hope. Can you can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Well, well first of all, I, I want to just commend, you know, African-American families um, because that's, that's who centrally this book is about, you know, for just their incredible resilience, you know. I think one of the things that struck me, the more you read and understand this history, is that you contrast it with, let's just say generously, <laughs> that there are certain media outlets which are always panning black families, right? You know them. We know them. Oh, yes. You know, they're always trying to find a reason to just focus on what they see as fully dysfunctional, what they see as, you know, yet another statistic, and it's all dire and all this kind of thing. And, you know, I firmly believe, Dr. Ross, there's like a way... You know, it's like the glasses, you can look at it half full, you can look at it half empty. And I look at it half full because when you know this history in any level of detail, but even if you don't know it in that level of detail, just enough, you understand that black families, what they have achieved is in spite of, yeah. not because of, it's it's just the truth of the way this, this country has, has treated them. And so the fact that not everybody is a statistic <laughs> is already, is already, you know, a victory. The fact that not everybody is in prison 
Not everybody is on drugs. Not everybody is down and out. Not everybody's dying early. That even people who have gone through some of these things um, have been able to overcome some have. As you know right. from your own history and the people that you help, um, which is so wonderful what you do with Mothers in Crisis, that there are people who are able, even when they have gone through some of these very difficult, what I call after effects or spread effects of this history. And I do... I do draw a line and a connection to some of this stuff. It's amazing that there is another side that, that many, many have been able to get to the other side and not everybody has fallen and completely can't get up. And I thank God for that. Obviously, I think it's His grace. I mean, I think the history shows, you know, the evidence shows that black families in America are resilient. They're a resilient group of folks. And, you know, you knock them with one punch, just better look out because they're coming back again. You know, in another way, they stand and bat up. Seven times they fall, seven times they get back up again. So I, I felt like this story was emblematic of that because I didn't just tell the story of them on the auction. The story is not just about what happened to them on the auction block, which is this terrible thing of them being devastating thing. They're separated from each other. I told the story of what happened two years later when the Civil War was, you know, had begun and a number of these people on the auction block who had been sold, you know, go and sign up with the union and fight for their freedom. Isn't that amazing? You know, from the auction block to Civil War soldier and after the war is over, a number of them go looking for each other. And that was the most powerful example of resilience I could ever find. They go looking for the wives, they go looking for their relatives, their grandparents, their mothers, their fathers, cousins, you know, community. They go looking for their community that they had before. And in a number of cases that I'm able to show in the book, they found one another. Of course, there are many cases in which that didn't happen, but the fact that they were so determined to stitch together these threads um, of family life that had been broken, I think it speaks volumes. And um, I want people to think about that as much as they think about the devastation and the trauma of what these events did and still do to black communities. Yes, and that's that's definitely something that is a uh, common thread within the book, which caused me to pick it back up because sometimes things are so painful, you know, it's just yeah. hard to just keep reading and, and thinking about, but the the thread of hope. And, and I see, and as you spoke, I, you answered the question that as we remember these good things uh, about the resilience and the things that uh, we were able to accomplish in spite of, then that does build hope in us. And it also... Sure that kind of hope that we can continue to pass on. That's so, right. That, that's the story right. doesn't end on the auction block, you see. So it's like yes. sometimes when we tell these stories about lynching, auctions and so forth, it's like, oh, that's the end of it. But in this case, and in right. many cases, that's not the end. So when these families, you know, do their best to reconnect after the war and when they, or after the, even if they don't fully reconnect, but wherever they resettle, and that, then you have to jump a few chapters to the Reconstruction chapter, right, after the Civil War. When they uh-huh. resettle places where they moved to, you know, many of them, you know, become amazing contributors and productive members of their society, their new home. And, 
you know, you would think that they would be out for the count, but they're not, Dr. No. Oz. Well, that's the, good, that's the good memory. That's the memory that we have to, to hold on to, and mm -hmm. uh, that, that does uh, bring hope. And I, I'm so glad that you, that you wrote it from that perspective. And there was another uh, uh, passage that I highlighted that I wanted to uh, kind of um, chat with you about. Sure. And the fact that I, as a native of Jamaica, may have an ancestral link to the people of this study is both fascinating and rewarding. Right. So, so you have a... Talk, let's talk about that. Yeah. So this, this goes to something that's, you know, very hard. At the very heart of the question of this, what, what it means to be a part of the African diaspora, right? And diaspora, a word just means the scattering of people, right? Diaspora can refer to Jewish diasporas, you can have a Syrian diaspora, you, know, you can have a diaspora in any community at all. But it just means wherever they've been scattered to, wherever they now live, that at some point they, you know, when you say the African diaspora, that means that they, they, they originally came from the continent of Africa. That is the case. For people in the Caribbean, for many people, not everybody, but many people in the Caribbean, including Jamaica, and of course that's the case for African American communities, but our oh, yes. point of origin, right, is West and Central Africa, very specifically, that's our point of origin. Like somewhere along the line, whether you know that person or not, there was an ancestor that was from West and Central Africa, for both you and I. Um, now we might have some other ancestors as well. Let's not let's not forget that it can get to be a pretty complicated picture. Because <laughs> was complicated, but at least one significant one <laughs> was from Western Central Africa, for both Jamaica and African American communities. Just about there's been a fair amount of studies that have been done about the Gullah Geechee, because this is what this is this this particular African American community is Gullah Geechee speaking. And for your viewers or your listeners, um, the Gullah are just a particular, particularly, um, you know, they're all over, but their original communities in the U.S. are in southern Georgia, North Carolina, Florida as well, um, and so forth, low country areas, you know, very much near the ocean. Um, and they continue to speak a language which is a mix of African words, and also some African intonation, even if it's not African words, but polyphonic, you know, like many, the tone itself mm -hmm. is very reminiscent of African languages. So anyway, one of the things that's been done when people have studied, and people have studied these communities, the Gullah Geechee communities of Southern Georgia in this case, is that many of them come from Sierra Leone in West Africa. So Sierra Leone, you know, I mean, the, the Gullah the Geechee African American communities in southern Georgia are from all over West Africa, make no mistake. But there uh -huh. is a very strong connection to the Mande of Sierra Leone, the Mande ethnic group of Sierra Leone. So, so, that, that's, so you have that on one side. And then on the other side, you have my DNA connection, okay? which I did in part while I was, you know, in part for this, this work that I was writing in the Weeping Time, I went ahead and did some of that DNA study, and it turns out that I also have <laughs> connections oh. to some of the ethnic groups of Syria. What I hoped it would do, a lot more work has to be done, but I hoped that people 
from black communities in the Caribbean and black communities in America would realize that we literally could be brother and sister. <laughs> wow. You know? Yeah. And that yeah. some of the crazy, you know, conflicts that happen between us sometimes are just really, it's because we don't know our history. We literally could have, there could have been a brother that was left off in the Caribbean and then a sister who was dropped off in America. That's just like how that works. Historically. Right. Yeah. You yeah. Know? That's, that's just how that works. There was no, oh, well, they're brother and sister, so we'll make sure they stay in Jamaica together. <laughs> <laughs> no, that no, wasn't happening. No. That wasn't happening. The ship that was coming from West and Central Africa was going to make a stop in the Caribbean first very often. It would let off and sell a few, auction off a few. And then it would also make a stop in places like, you know, southern Georgia and, and, and so forth. So, you know, there's no, the, the kind of the weeping time separations were something that happened from the beginning of the slave trade experience. And it meant that families, literal families, not just, okay, fictive kin, but like real families, you know, brother, sister, mother, whatever, could be split up and some left on, in the Crimean and another group left in the U.S. And so I'm fascinated by that. And I think it's what drives my Pan-African spirit and my sense of inclusion where it comes to people of African descent. And I wish I could share that with everybody. You know, I wish, wish we could see, I wish they could see through my eyes that we actually have and then you know probably much more in common than we have than differences right absolutely I, i'm in agreement with we're going to have a whole thought entitled tears and it's from day 20 and then we're going to come back with the rest of the interview from dr ann bailey i'm hopologist Dr. Rosalind Lewis Tompkins, and I am here to share a hope thought with you today, taken from my book, As Long As There's Breath in Your Body, There Is Still Hope, and my Practice of Hopeology booklet, Learn How to Become More Hopeful and Get Your Hope Thoughts Today, Guaranteed to Lift You from a place of sorrow and despair and help you to think hope. Join me now for your hope shot for today. May your tears water your garden of hope. There's a scripture in the book of Psalms that says, What was sown in tears shall be reaped in joy. And that is so true. Oftentimes, we don't see it whenever we are going through trials and tribulations of many kind. And we find ourselves weeping over situations. And we don't understand that tears are a part of this whole process of hope. That tears water the garden of hope you ever felt better after a good cry is something about having a good cry to cleanse to 
release those emotions that have been pent up inside. There's a time for mourning and we cannot pretend just because we have hope that we don't get hurt and we don't experience emotional pain because of loss. Hope doesn't camouflage or cover up the truth of what's going on inside of us whenever we cry and understand that every tear is watering my garden of hope and I will rise again and when my garden grows hope will spring up and I'll be alright because I'll know that everything is alright all is well God is in control. I still have hope. I have another chance. And that's what I want to remind you of today. That when things are hard, it's okay to cry, to release, and to do what you need to do in order to get through the situation. And that's where hope comes in. Hope lets you know It's not going to always be like that. That you're getting through it. And as you're going through to get to the place of blessings and purpose and destiny, allow every tear to water the garden of your hope and rise again and run on just a little while longer. Because weeping may endure, and it may not. But if it does, it's okay. Because morning is coming. And if you've watered your garden of hope, you have so much to look forward to. Another day, another chance, another way. I'm Dr. Rosalind White Lewis Tompkins, and I pray that you have enjoyed this Hope Thought for today. For more Hope Thoughts, please listen to Think Hope Podcast. If you'd like more information about how you can become involved with the Hope Campaign, please visit makeahopeconnection.com. You can also go to practiceofhopeology.com. Remember, as you plant the seeds of hope into the garden of your heart, Blessings will spring forth. And lastly, I want to read uh, one more uh, passage from your book as we kind of wrap things up a little bit. I believe it's a great place uh, to end, and I would recommend everyone who's listening to pick up their copy and just read it and just savor it because it is so rich. But here's the passage. If the auction is an accurate symbol of the attack on black family life that was the institution of slavery, then the attempts of black families then and now to reconstruct their past is a symbol of hope. That hope is beautifully captured in the slave memorial on George Washington's Mount Vernon's estate. And then you have uh, you, you have a figure, figure two shown there, the slave memorial. And what I really loved about that uh, Mount Vernon estate, including three steps, steps marked faith, hope, 
and love to represent the value that sustained African Americans during bondage. There's a lot of other stuff going on beyond the hype that's really important. And one of the best examples I can find is these black family reunions. I love them. I just love them. Yeah. Give me the t-shirt. You know, give me the t-shirt with the... <laughs> You know, give me the barbecue dinner. I'm there. I actually wish that more people would just invite me to their reunions. I would be there. Miscellaneous, I'd just be that fly on the wall. I'll be there any day of the week because it's such a wonderful, the fact that this has been going on for, obviously for years and not all black families do it, but there's a number of black families do this, you know, you know, gather their families together. Um, often there's somebody who's like a, almost like a little mini historian, if you will, making some documentation of what's taking place. You know, it's an intergenerational way of connecting the older and the younger family members. I just think those, that's an example, not just of resilience, but really very powerful undercurrent, if you will, which is sustainable and can do, and does sustain families in the long haul. So if there's a family out there that's out there that doesn't do this, or you used to do it, but you're not doing it anymore, let me just encourage you that there's a whole movement of this going on and that you want to tap back into it. And that's been, again, quietly as it's kept, another way in which people show faith, hope, and love and are sustained in spite of the assault on black families, and those assaults are institutional assaults um, very often. These are one of the ways in which I think black families have survived and continue to do well. So I, I just, I like to think about that, and I, I, I talk to people, you know, who are, who are doing this kind of thing in their family, and it seemed to me a very nice antidote to the trauma of the past and present. What brings you hope, Dr. Ann Bailey? Well, I have to say that, you know, I, I, I feel a sense of, I'm very thankful, you know, that somehow it's been, I think there's been some, there were some early seeds planted in me to have knowledge about this history. I don't have any control over that. I just, you know, just, I mean, just early seeds. And I could mention a couple of different things. You know, I was exposed to roots, this, that, whatever, a class project when I was nine or 10, whatever. On slavery. I mean, I could mention some things which make, you know, kind of logical sense, but it's not really a logical thing. I think these seeds were planted in me to be able to share, to learn, and I'm still learning. I'm, you know, people sometimes think of me as an expert, but the frank, you know, for me, the definition of expert is somebody who's still learning, you know, so I'm still learning a lot about this history. There's a lot to learn. So, I see myself as somebody who's learning and sharing the seeds of grace in this history. And that gives me hope. Um, that gives me a lot of hope that that's been planted in me and that I'm to do what I can to share that in multiple different ways. And this is how I'll close, that listening to marginalized voices, meaning starting with black voices, but there are the voices too the indigenous peoples of America and elsewhere in the world, I think we need to listen to some of those voices. Those voices that have been marginalized for the 500 years, I think they got stuff to say. I think they have got stuff to teach us that could make the next 500 years a more sustainable life, you know, for everybody, not just a few. That's my personal view, and that gives me some hope. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on Think Hope Podcast and taking the time out of your busy schedule as mm-hmm. as a professor and an author and historian and, and also uh, with your organization, Green Team International. Uh, you're, just, you're just doing so much to push forward this positive message of hope, of resilience, of love, and God bless you. God bless you, too. And thank you, Dr. Ross, for all the great work that you are doing and the movement that you have been leading. And I just, you know, want to encourage you and your supporters as well. Like, you know, it's, you know, I've learned a lot from you in just short time. I've gotten to know you, and I just want to encourage you as well. Well, thank you. To keep you. that alive. Yes. Thank you so much, and bye-bye. So you take care now. Bye-bye. Boy, that was a powerful, powerful interview. And I tell you, as I said before, get the book, read the book. It is something that we all can learn from, and we can all be encouraged and inspired by the resiliency of a people and uh, and she really does a good job of just kind of laying it all out there. And she's a wonderful, phenomenal, phenomenal woman. And it was just such a such a pleasure meeting her, and and just so great to support her work with Green Team International and the things that she's doing to make a difference there in Jamaica and beyond. Now we're going to have a hope break. I'm hopeologist. Dr. Rosalind Lewis Tompkins, and I am here to share a hope thought with you today, taken from my book, As Long As There's Breath in Your Body, There Is Still Hope, and my Practice of Hopeology booklet, Learn How to Become More Hopeful and Get Your Hope Thoughts Today, Guaranteed to Lift You from a place of sorrow and despair and help you to think hope. Join me now for your hope shot for today. For more hope thoughts, please listen. Need hope? Know someone who does? If so, join Mothers in Crisis Hope Pass It On campaign and learn to become more hopeful and bring hope to others. Go to practiceofhopeology.com and get your free booklet and hope thought today. Hope, pass it on, and save a life. And remember, as long as there's breath in your body, there is still hope. Wow, this has been a wonderful podcast today, Think Hope Podcast. And the interview with Dr. Ann Bailey was so very powerful. We want to thank God for her and all of our Hopi awardees for 2022 and all of our sponsors who are helping us to sponsor this Hope campaign, Hope, Pass It On, and Save a Life. Stay tuned because as the Hope train is going down the track, before you know it, we will be right into April, the National Month of Hope. And so we'll be having these podcasts a little bit more frequently as we get closer and closer to April, National Month of Hope. Thank you for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more information, if you want to become a part of this hope movement and this hope campaign, hope, pass it on, go to practiceofhopeology.com 
and you can find out about these practical tools that we've been talking about. And you can also go to makeahopeconnection.com and you'll have all of the information about how you too can be a part of what Mothers in Crisis is doing to promote the public awareness of hope. God bless you. We love you. Until next time, stay hopeful. Remember, as long as there's breath in your body, there is hope.